Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. I'm currently in southern India, where I've been traveling around for the last week and a half. And I'll be here for a few more days with one of my teachers, Dr. Douglas Brooks. We've been going around to, a group of us have been going around to some Shaivite tantric temples, which has been a really fascinating opportunity to see and experience a lot of the tradition in person that I've studied over the years. And I should say, I'm relatively new to this particular school of, of Tantra, specifically as taught by Douglas. But after years of studying Buddhism and, you know, just sort of other strands of wisdom like Advaita Vedanta that have come out of India, it's really my first time to be here. And it's really amazing. I'm, I'm very blown away by the wisdom and beauty of the culture and also the generosity and warmth of the people. We're in southern India, and so I'm, I'm told that's particularly the case down here in terms of the warmth and friendliness of the people. But people are great. The trip has been great, and I would highly recommend it to anyone who's interested. In fact, my teacher does these trips annually and sometimes biannually. I think this year he'll be doing two. So if you're interested, you can go to rajanaka.com and check those out. I'm not receiving any money for this. I'm just doing this because it's been an awesome experience and I'd highly recommend it to others. So if you are interested, it's rajanaka, R-A-J-A-N-A-K-A.com. And you can find a schedule on there. So as you may have noticed, I'm fighting off a cold, which I just picked up. These are the type of things that can go around easily on a tour bus. <laughs> and fortunately, it's not too bad at the moment. And so I've taken a day off because I'd like to keep it that way. So I will keep my intro quite short today, given my voice is weak. And I'll go straight to introducing today's guest, who is a brilliant man, who's had a fascinating life journey, and I thought our conversation was very interesting, and, and I hope you'll feel the same way. Guy Harriman is someone who currently lives in Chiang Mai, Thailand, which is how I came to know him, because it's where I live as well. But his name actually came across not... I guess I met someone locally who knew him, but also Dennis McKenna had mentioned him in a podcast on Joe Rogan, and Dennis and I talked about him again when he was on my podcast, and I kept hearing his name as someone I should definitely look up, and so I did, and guys, a fascinating journey. I, I won't say too much of it because we go through his personal story in the podcast, but he is from England and was an engineer who also worked in the music, uh, in electronic music before moving to Silicon Valley 
in his mid-30s and worked for Steve Jobs at Next, which some of you might know is the company that Steve Jobs started in between his time at Apple. So he was thrown out of Apple, started Next, and before he went back to taking over Apple. But Guy worked with him and, and knew Steve very well at Next and has some interesting things to say, including about what it was like to work for Steve Jobs. And then Guy worked in Silicon Valley for a bit longer, including at Cisco Systems. And throughout this time, he had been getting into yoga and energy work like Reiki and eventually just decided that he really wanted to focus on yoga and energy healing and meditation on a more full-time basis. So he moved to Chiang Mai, Thailand, and that's where he's been since. But what I love about Guy is he is he has a very strong background in science and engineering. So we delve into a lot of topics that are of interest to people in the yoga world. And for those who are interested in meditation, these are topics that I find very interesting. For example, you know, questions about consciousness, intersection between quantum physics and Eastern religions. But these are topics that are very easy, I think, and I'd, I'd put myself in this category. It's very easy to sort of get over-enthusiastic about and, and it can be easy to overstate claims if one does not have a science background. That's something I try not to do, but I think we hear a lot of it and the yoga, meditation, and sort of new age spirituality worlds. Guy is someone who can touch on these topics with, frankly, without getting... It's definitely not in the woo-woo realm. I mean, Guy has a very strong background, and so he can really speak to these issues with a lot of knowledge and insight and authority. And in fact, he's really used his strong background in engineering to develop some incredible technologies for exploring consciousness. One in particular is called the Ajna Light, and I have used it on a number of occasions. And Guy's claim is that it induces a DMT-like experience, that it in fact does stimulate the release of DMT from the pineal gland. This guy and I discussed a little bit, there's no way we can know that. For sure, that's precisely what's happening, but I will tell you that the effect is incredibly potent in a positive way. You can have a powerful, powerful visual and consciousness exploration experience without the, of course, it's not going to be the same as a psychedelic, which may include some benefits you don't get with psychedelics, but you also don't have the risks and feeling of being out of control. It's really a technology that I would highly recommend checking out. And you can do that at ajnalight.com. And Guy has a couple other technologies, interesting technologies as well, which we will include in the show notes. So I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure that you will as well. And with that said, I give you my conversation with Guy Herman. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Hi, Guy. How are you doing? 
I'm doing very well, Adrian. Thanks for inviting me onto your podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun recently when we got together at your place in Chiang Mai, and I really enjoyed the Ajna Light technology. I think it's so amazing, and I can't wait to talk more about that later in the show. But I want to start out just with really going into your story a bit because you've had an absolutely fascinating career and life trajectory. And I'd, I'd really like to start with your time in Silicon Valley, you know, but please, by all means, you know, feel free to kind of back up a little bit before that and tell us really, how did you become interested in technology to begin with? Right. Okay, great. Well, I'm from the UK, and I was actually 34 when I moved to Silicon Valley. I originally went to medical school because my, my parents were both doctors, and it seemed like the you know right thing to do. But then um, <clears throat> it became clear to me when I was 18 that this isn't what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I dropped out of medical school and started building music synthesizers. And that was back in the 70s when it was a lot of fun. You know, it's all analog. I built these different synthesizers that would do some pretty interesting things, including the sequencer that would run randomly and have three voltages simultaneously, so I could make some pretty interesting sounds. But eventually that led me into realizing, well, you know, if I'm doing electronics, then, uh, you know, I'll go back to school. And when I graduated in 79 from Manchester University, there was an amazing startup called Inmos. And so I joined that, and I was the lead designer of a parallel processor, microprocessor called a transputer. Well, that ended up being used by Pixar. Um, they had some problems with their silicon graphics hardware. It would have taken them three years to render Tin Toy, which is the precursor to Toy Story. This is about 88, yeah, 1988. So um, through that, I got introduced to Steve Jobs and interviewed there, and then he said he wanted me to, to join join next it's like oh okay <laughs> there was some of the best people literally and definitely the best people on the planet working at next and i was there from 89 to 94 for example the whole of stanford university's music department was there and i was doing uh, the memory display dis design for what was called the next risk workstation which um, never came out because uh, Steve ran through all the money. <laughs> Next, it was the biggest disaster financially ever it's up to that date. It was $300 million, mainly Canon's money. But it was a great place to learn and became an ASIC designer. You know, we're, we're literally on the front end of technology. And then through that, uh, actually, I have to say I learned a lot from Steve, you know, on many levels, uh, spiritual level, as well as seeing him, how he worked, you know, what his values were and how dedicated he was, you know, just working with passion to get something that was powerful as well and beautiful as well as functional. You know, I sat through a lot of meetings with him. But, you know, I, I realized by that time I'd already been doing yoga for 10 years. You know, I became vegetarian. I started yoga at 24 and then 30, I became vegan so I was like Steve, uh, and, and Next was great because all the food was vegan until too many people started complaining. The other thing about Next was that it was a totally open company. It was really wonderful. There were no contracts. 
Like, there's no employment contract. If you decide to leave, you left. If Steve decided you're a bozo, you left. <laughs> he had a great phrase that I'm upgrading your position, which means you're screwed. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, having, and, and he, he said he knew that it wasn't sustainable. Everything inside the company was open. We all knew, or we had access to other people's salaries and stuff like that. How Rich Page did it, who who was the VP of hardware, he would just show us a graph, you know, like 10 or 15 dots on it and say, well, here's the graph of everyone in the group and this is where you are. And so you knew where you were relative to other people. I actually took a pay cut to go to Mac. But Steve would say, you know, you can find out anything you want. It's, it's totally open. But eventually I'm going to have to stop, you know, because... When you get too many people together, it just takes one rotten apple to spoil it for everyone. And that happened around 200 people after about three years. So anyway, the point is that the web objects were written at Next and uh, CERN used Next hardware and software to make the internet, to make the web, World Wide Web. And so that was really historic, you know, being there. Now, it became clear that Next was getting out of hardware and I'm very intuitive on things like that. So it's like I was the first out of the door, which I didn't like. But Steve said something very, uh, very interesting to me. He said, I would never, ever work for a company whose product ended up in the wiring closet. I was thinking, oh, shit, that's a really good idea. So then I, I went to work in networking. And, you know, it's again a pretty crazy thing to do. I could have gone to work for any of the computer companies, but I'd already done, you know, by that time, about 15 years in computing. And so uh, I went to join what became Bay Networks, and then my friends insisted I started teaching them yoga. So I, I did that. And then after a year of that, I became, you know, did my yoga teacher training in yoga therapy. So I was doing something pretty unusual. I was you know, in my technology path, but I was also really working on the things that were more important to me, lifestyle things like, you know, doing my yoga. And then one day in 1995, I was sitting in a conference on chip synthesis and the field apps engineer next to me was moving her hands up and down. Her name was uh, Jackie. Um, I said, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm practicing Reiki. I said, what's that? So... I could feel the energy. It's like, whoa. To actually feel energy being moved was really crazy. So she introduced me to her teacher, who was the assistant to one of the original 21 Reiki masters. And so I, I learned through her and became a Reiki teacher, Reiki master at that stage around 95, 96. And then I started doing weird stuff like having uh, uh, crystals in my cubicle at work and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so now before before we go into the weird stuff, can I pause you, Guy, and ask, I'm curious, you know, what started to cause the shift, you know, from being so focused in into technology and computer software and then, you know, I get that yoga was important to you in your personal life. When did that start to shift where you know, this yoga, these contemplative practices you were doing on your own started to really go from the, the backseat to the, the foreground of your priorities. And why did that happen? Okay. Yeah. It happened after about 10 years and it was really quite organic in a way. I just noticed that the things I was interested in were not just more technology. You know, I could feel it was pretty soulless and heartless and I was just not 
interested in being a cog in the machine. I was always a rebel. I always refused, always refused to go into management. Uh, they wanted me to be a manager at Inmos in the UK. I said no. Uh, I was team leader, you know, I was leading the transfer design, but same at Next and same at all the companies I worked at. It, I realized that the mind, for its own sake, is a very empty master. You know, you can try and control everything in your life. And I was a perfectionist, you know, I was, while I was at medical school, I was like number four in anatomy and stuff like that. And I was top of my class all the way through electronics in Manchester, uh, you know, got, got the prize for electronics and all that. But I realized everything I achieved in that realm, once you achieved it, so what? Okay, so what's the next thing that's impossible to achieve? And if you see that the material world and the culture we live in, which is materially focused, externally driven, all that it's got to offer is really more self-dissatisfaction. And it's a dual system, you know, system of duality. Now, yoga, yoga philosophy really didn't start to interest me until I'd moved to Silicon Valley, you know, started doing my yoga teacher training. I'd say that was a a pivotal time. We had some of the best people come. It was a place called Commonweal, um, just north of, in Bellinas, just north of San Francisco. And we did, it was pretty hardcore, 150 hours of teacher training in 10, 10 days. Was it 10 days? No, 15 days. So it was like 10 hours a day. But Kali Ray was there, who did tri-yoga. Uh, some, some just amazing teachers. Through understanding their, their non-dual systems, in other words, Non-duality is about stepping outside judgment. Do you want this and reject that? And most people say, yeah, you know, I want the nice things and I reject the things that make me pissed off. Well, if you do that, you restrict your worldview into a very easily manipulated position because the things that are happening outside you determine your quality of life. But people who grow up in a non-material culture, like, say, you know, and it's not to romanticize it, but, you know, say somebody living in a mud hut in the middle of Africa, you know, not doing very well financially. They probably don't even have any money to speak of, you know, but they've got a community. They've got nature and they have time. They've got music. They've got dance. You know, they have values that actually are much more meaningful to the heart. So when I started realizing those were the things that actually spoke to me, and it was only through seeking other people's good opinion, really, that I was doing all the technology and stuff like that, and through intellectual curiosity. Once I got to a place where I, you know, I was, I was doing really well, a lot of people would have liked to be in my position, and I was learning, you know, I was still learning a lot, but my focus moved more onto my inner journey. It's the shift from duality, in other words, what all the Western religions teach, you know, Christianity, Islam, whatever you want, all those, it's all based on objectifying and judging and labeling. This is good, this is bad. Well, you know, I was brought up in the classics, you know, learning the classics in a boarding school in England. I learned a lot through, through Latin and Greek, you know, the whole pagan consciousness, which I could go into a lot, but, you know, it really planted some seeds for me. And energy, once I realized as an engineer, that my hands could feel and move energy and that I could move crystals with my fingers and, you know, not touching them, but, you know, projecting chi. My worldview changed a lot. And so magic, you know, children feel magic up until about the age of, say, five. And then they're told Santa Claus isn't real. We're all just lying to you. Everything that's real in the world is material. 
and mental and you have to do well at school and pass your exams and they will approve of you. If you buy into that conditioning, which you know, most, most children do because they want to please the adults around them, one of two things happens. One is, you know, you're a fairly rare individual, you do well and you will disconnect from everything that's non-material and used as emotional, energetic failures. So when you really look at the system, and you, you don't have to look at it very very hard to see this, I mean, more and more people are understanding it. It's set up to cause people to be slaves through their health, being taken away, vaccination, and eating junk food and all the rest of it. And then their originality and their passion being taken away, you know, the things that they had as young children. And so then you end up with people who don't have much to contribute to their own view of reality or to what other people accept. So having gone through, you know, fairly crazy, I, I was doing stuff that people should not do. You know, I went from a higher paid position in the UK to a lower paid position working for Steve. Well, that's stupid. But my intuition said, this is what you have to do. And I didn't know why, but somehow I knew, well, you know, there's some really cool stuff going on in San Francisco in the 60s, and maybe I'm meant to be part of it in some weird, weird way. And, you know, part of me always felt like a hippie. I was on the young end of that spectrum. But the, the sense of freedom and altered states is very important. You mentioned that you learned a lot from Steve, not only in terms of electronics, but also spiritually. What did you learn from him? What were your biggest takeaways? Can you say more about that? Passion is what separates human beings from machines. You can have all the AI you want in the world. It's just a collection of knowledge. You know, really, who cares? Yeah, it may function efficiently and blah, blah, blah. What meaning does it have? It might be good at manipulating stuff. Actually, I call AI artificial ignorance. A simulation, you know, it doesn't really matter. It can never be conscious because machinery doesn't have a DMT experience. Machines don't dream. Passion is what is in the heart. And in Taoism, you know, the emperor lives in the heart. The mind in, in the head is the servant. You know, that's the secret of the golden flower. Classic treatise, Taoist treatise, first translated by Carl Jung in the 1920s. So, you know, do you want to be a machine? If you're part of the system, you know, a slave part of the system, then, well, that's what you're going to get. You, you're going to be in the mental realm and your passion will dissolve over time. It just gets worn down. Through, you know, you'll start self-medicating. Maybe you'll start drinking or, you know, whatever. But to be truly human and to have an excellent journey through life, it's about passion. And, you know, Steve would often say the journey is the reward, you know, the Zen koan. Well, it is. If you're looking for something external, like, oh, I've got a, a more sexy wife than my neighbor, so I must be doing well, or, you know, and objectifying your relationship because of its value, on the material side, or, oh, I've got a new car, so I'm happy because I got this new car. Well, all of those things are meaningless. The happiness is not the same as joy. You know, happiness is about dopamine, reward centers in the brain being fired by dopamine. But dopamine's a neurotoxin. Dopamine actually, uh, when it's fired up, is it destroys the dopamine receptors. It's just like sugar destroying insulin receptors. So, what happens is you need more and more and more. So you have an addictive lifestyle. Well, maybe you get addicted to cruelty. You know, if you're into force, manipulating your way to having what you think you want, so you get happiness, that's violence. You know, that's 
manipulation. But passion, pure passion, like a child's passion, is joy. The child doesn't run through the field with a balloon because it's going to get a bigger car at the end of running through it. No, it's a pure expression of joy. So I guess what I could say is that yoga, after 10 years of sorting through, you know, the grossest form of my conditioning and my perfectionism and my indoctrinated values was realizing, what do I want? Well, nothing is what I want. Actually, I even started saying that in my 20s. Because I left, you know, I read all the classics. I grew up in boarding school. You know, how did I survive? I survived by reading all the classics. You know, Jane Austen, George Eliot, Stendhal, Dostoevsky, Hermann Hesse. You know, I just, I read all of them. And that was my imaginal world being fed. But, you know, to succeed... It was like, well, how do I, how do I survive, <laughs> you know, in this culture? How do I actually have enough money coming in to live? Because that's, that's the conditioning you're given. But it's actually, it's pretty hard work to die of starvation if you have human connections. But of course, we tend to put accumulation of stuff ahead of our human connections. So I can see where this is going for you. You know, you're, it sounds like you are someone who is passionate about technology, but I'm hearing sort of an increasing sense of alienation or a sense of soullessness, as you seem to put it so much in your own words. And you're finding that kind of connection to something deeper through contemplative practices, through yoga, through meditation. And I know what that's like, because I had a similar thing where, you know, this major part of your personal life you, you then find yourself wanting to really do all the time. And so you end up leaving your, your current job so that you can focus on that. But that's still, how do you then make the big jump to kind of being in Thailand and finding yourself as a monk and, and studying Buddhism full time? Yeah, I'm somebody who observes a lot. You know, I observe myself. Um, you know, through yoga, I got into the habit of doing a practice. Well, First of all, it was just a bit of yoga at night. But then it grew into more like I was literally dragged into Tibetan Qigong. It was like, what the hell is this doing? You know, this is not my path. I'm, I'm a yogi. But I was in the land of the Medicine Buddha in Sokal in 1997, Bhagura Purnima with Anandi Ma. So I'd had Shaktipat with her, which is an energy blessing. And, you know, I was doing more and more esoteric things. Now, the thing with the esoteric is that... It opens up nonlinear stuff. It's stuff that you can't control, or you better not try and control, with your head. It is literally, you know, it's this opening up to the soul journey. And, and when that happens, things appear. Now, they appear differently for different people, and that's what you talk about, you know, the soul thing. But the soul and the heart speak with a very quiet voice. The ego with all its fear and, you know, the reptilian brain driving you into this dopamine process that reward-based and addictive behavior and all the rest of it that is so dominant because our culture is you know in kali yoga it's in this sort of dark self-destructive mode where everything's shit <laughs> you know literally but if you look at it in the yoga perspective the buddha flower of the lotus grows from the mud you know it's that transition from absolute crap into beauty and that's the soul's journey so it's different for every single person. To my mind, there are, you know, eight billion paths to the truth. Why should my truth be the same as yours or yours the same as mine? And there are certain things that I think are fundamental that even the religions teach, you know, compassion and caring and empathy. 
that kind of thing. Those are core values. And But beyond that, you know, how you get to exploring who you are and then how you get to actually living that on a day-to-day basis. I can tell you one thing. It always takes courage. That's the hallmark of it. If it's easy, forget it. You know, because the mind's a liar. The mind will just make up all the stories. Say more about how we find the courage to do that, to do the right thing. You know, I, I think... Jung talks about it as, you know, sort of rising up to meet your destiny. That's sort of another way of how he frames self-actualization. And how do we find that courage in a way that, and I guess this goes along with it, it not only takes courage, it takes, you know, in yoga, we'd call it like discrimination. You've also got to see through the mind or the ego's tricks and its trappings, right? You've got to have correct discernment, you know, to really see what's wise, you know, in alignment with your deepest values. And and how do we do those two things in your experience? Well, there's only one thing that we have that tells the truth, that absolutely can't lie, and that's the body. So the mind, by its nature, it's a filter, you know, it's taking everything that's out there and trying to intellectualize it into sound bites and triggers for prejudices and labeling and all the stuff we do to allow us to function in a highly complex and ever-changing external environment. But the body doesn't have that mechanism. The body is in service to you, you know, to the soul, basically, and it does its best. It's amazing you're given all this chi, you know, yang chi, when you're born. That chi, it comes in, I think, when the sperm and the ovum come together. And it's like a, you know, a whole new reset button on nature, your DNA, and then all the RNA epigenetics that happen. But you're given all this energy, and your body accepts a huge amount of abuse. You know, sodas, junk food, vaccinations, all the rest of it, medications. And Eventually, though, it gives up. You know, your body starts becoming acidic when you're, say, 40, some younger for some people, older for others. But unless you do something to really take charge of your, your health, then the foundation that can hold the truth disappears. So for me, it was always through the body, just analyzing, well, what, what have I got? I've got a mind that is creating stories for the mind. Well, that's not going to go anywhere. But if I work in my body and I cleanse you know, my consciousness in my body. In yoga, you know, we talk about the five koshas. So the body is the first kosha. Then you've got the energetic body, which is the blueprint of the physical body, the emotional kosha, the mental kosha, and then the samadhi kosha, or the spiritual body. So working from the bottom, what appears to be the simplest and most mundane, if you work with that in a disciplined way, in other words, do your daily practice, the mind will become focused and quiet because its grasping nature will be channeled into something that repeats day after day. You know, how do I take care of my body? Well, I do my yoga and my qigong. What's the most important thing in my day is that it's not uh, my to-do list or the emails I have to write or the people I have to interact with or the components I have to order or the support I have to do or anything like that. Number one thing is my daily practice. Can I ask, because you've, I'm actually really curious about this as someone who studied yoga and Qigong, and 
You know, I love both the Indian system as well as the Taoist and, you know, the Chinese system generally. I'm wondering, because I see similarities, but there are also differences. And I'm wondering, how do you work with those two in a way that integrates both of them and in a way that makes sense to you without it being contradictory? It's geographical. (laughs) Um, What's fascinating to me is the highest wisdom came from the most violent culture, which was Tibet. Now, Tibet received yoga, Padmasambhava, who was said to have lived 1,700 years. He he brought Buddhism to Tibet. But the Tibetans conquered the Chinese, and they were absorbing all the Taoist stuff back, you know, 1,000, probably even 1,500 years ago. So Tibet is a microcosm of everything I feel is valuable. You've got the Bon religion, which is animistic. It's They do freaking weird shit. Like, if you're sick, like, say you've got a stomachache, watch out. They'll freaking brand you. And they take a, <laughs> a red-hot brand and they stick it on you. It's like, oh, that hurts. The idea is, you know, theoretically, the demon leaves. But actually, your immune system is boosted because it's got to deal with this brand. You know, it's Oh, okay. So they got this this sort of level of consciousness, which is very sort of animal-like in many ways. Uh, And that's the Bon religion. And through that, they have animism. So ghosts, you know, spirits, consciousness, the understanding that everything's alive. Well, that to me is absolutely the case. You know, trees, bushes, plants, the clouds, the dragons in the clouds. It has to have energy in it. It's not inanimate matter. And we can interact with it on an energetic level through consciousness. If you take enough of it, for sure. You know, if you do psilocybin, <laughs> you'll start talking to the trees. Yeah, that's too much so, for me. As much as Dennis and Terence. But there's, there's the nature aspect. Now, they've got Vajrayana, you know, the, it's the equivalent of Theravada in Thailand. But it's, it's a Mahayana, so it's the big vessel. But lots of ritual, you know, hardcore chanting and seated meditation, very still. So very ritual-based, to me, like the second level. But then you've got Tantra. And Tantra, to me, is is really important. And in the West, it's bastardized into left-hand Tantra because it's New Age shit being sold through sex. And that's such a tiny aspect of it. Tantra really is visualization. Now, when you visualize you're creating an energetic structure. I don't care what it is you visualize. Even if you visualize something gross and inane, like a new car or something like that, you know, all this blah, 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 new age. The point, though, is to visualize, I think, in my practice, I visualize internal energy. I visualize things like Merkabas, and I visualize how they work with my body, but I do it every day. So what I'm interested in is creating energetic structures that cleanse me from the impurities of the mind. And in doing that, by doing it over and 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 over every day, every day, every day, you know, 20 years now, what's happening is some of the things that I grasp onto become less meaningful. Now, the highest level is Dzogchen. So Dzogchen is non-dual teaching. And I work with them in my practice. You know, you'll see, I have this beautiful tanka in my room, which is in the center is the blue Buddha of pure awareness. Uh, 
in coitus with the dakini, the white dakini of consciousness. So he's inside her, she's sitting on his lap. Now, what that means is awareness that we experience through the embodied experience can be transformed into consciousness. Now, that awareness may obviously not be very pleasant. It's the things that come up that we hate or that we wish to distance ourselves from are our teachers, the people we keep inviting into a relationship because they actually remind us of mother or our father, you know, depending on which side you're working. Those people come in again and again and they teach teach you in a, in a very, very painful way lessons of awareness. Now, you can do that on the emotional level and blame everyone else and say it's everyone else's fault. But actually, if you want to cleanse those emotional habits, which is what karma, karmic experiences are, the, the habits from past lives, um, you're best off embracing it and you're best off taking time out every day to reset yourself. And that's what the daily practice is all about. It's what you do first thing in the morning. It may just start off being as simple as having a few minutes of silence before you get up and you plug in to the matrix by doing your emails or looking on Facebook. Do you love yourself enough to give yourself five minutes of quiet time before you do the next 12 or 15 hours of crap? I want to ask you something. I'm going to do this anyway. That brings us back because I realized we didn't fully talk about how you ended up in Thailand and, you know, were a monk for a period of time. But I'd, I'd love you to also talk about, since we were just discussing tantric practices and how that's such an important part of your own practice now when you study Dzogchen. I'm curious sort of if you're that into tantric practices in Vajrayana, how is it that you ended up being a monk and studying in Thailand, which is Theravada? Yeah, because I don't believe in all these intellectual separations. If you take something pure, like the Buddha, Buddha was a psychologist, you know, he was a philosopher, he was a yogi, and he looked inside enough and had enough personal experience of going to the extremes to come across the concept of the middle way. Any great teacher like, say, Rudolf Steiner understood that the people who followed him, they want to grasp onto the essence of the teaching, and so they put all this mental superstructure, rules and regulations on top of it to create conformity, and then they're actually sucking energy from the people who become disciples and devotees because they're plugged into the thought form of the religion. A thought form, you know, sort of Steiner term, but a thought form is a very real thing. If enough people believe the same shit, then the shit becomes this rigid structure. Well, I've always been a nonconformist. I've always been a rebel. I don't care what other people think. I don't give a damn, you know. If you say Jesus did this and that, and like I was told as a child, it's a complete lie. You know, it's a syncretic religion dreamt up at the Council of Nicaea in 423. I really don't care about human structures that are created as schools of thought because they take the essence and turn it into this rigid, dead thing that people are meant to conform to. And the spirit of it is what's important. So I take the spirit of Taoism. I do some really pretty crazy stuff, but I've made up 90 plus percent of my, probably 95% of my practice. Bits and pieces I'll take from here and there. Oh, that feels good. Based on intuition. 
so I'm learning it with my gut. I'm not learning it by studying books. I do zero seated meditation. I'm moving my body all the way through my practice, whether it's in yoga or my qigong. As I say, I'm mostly visualizing stuff like Merkabas. I've got this thing where I've got this 40 hertz Merkaba that's blue, that's actually spinning in my Sarasana chakra. In my Anahata chakra, my heart chakra, I've got this green one spinning at 8 hertz, the Shuman. And then at Muladhara chakra, my base chakra, I've got this red Merkaba that's spinning at 2 hertz. Now that came out of me trying to understand what I'd done with my uh, Paralog. And how did that happen? And if you could explain, sorry for folks, what, what the Paralite is for those who aren't familiar. I guess I'll sort of circle around again. So here I am teaching yoga in Silicon Valley, teaching energy work, and I, I decide I really need to get into my body more. I've been far too mental. So I start doing body work. You know, I became a massage therapist, came to Thailand in 1998, decided that Chiang Mai was going to be my new home, but I didn't know how and when because I was still working for Cisco at the time. And then I ended up on a project in Cisco, and I was director level there, you know, so pretty crazy that I ended up there. But I never went into the office once in three years. I was doing this um, network processor. I was the only one in Silicon Valley. The uh, network processor designers were in RTP on the East Coast. I was working with Toshiba in Japan. And it meant that I could do all my simulations. It's a 4 million gate ASIC. It was, you know, a system on a chip. So for the time, 1998, 1999, it was really at the leading edge. The NRE, just to make the mask for the wafer design, it was a uh, million dollars. So if, if I made one mistake, it was a million dollars down the tubes. No wonder you needed to start doing yoga. <laughs> well, I was, already, you know, I was doing it, but to be honest, it really was not interesting me that much. But I did it. You know, I said, okay, these people are paying me. I'm going to do it and put my effort into it. But it was very bizarre. It just allowed me to start going deeper into my inner world. So that's why I say, you know, for anyone, watch the signs. But if you're not doing something that's based in the body, good luck. Because if it's a mental practice, um, Tian Yoga, you know, the, the Raja Yoga, meditation practice, all the Vipassana, all the rest of it, it's all mental. At least in Vipassana, I'm walking. But I don't see how mental practice can quieten the mind. To me, it's fundamentally something broken in it. To me, you have to go into the energetics and the body to get to a point of clarity where passion can arise. You know, if the intellect doesn't generate passion, it's the opposite. It's the destroyer of passion. Passion comes up through the heart. How can you have passion if your body's falling apart? I mean, seriously, that's pretty tough. You can simulate it, but again, that I would say is dopamine. That is desire. So if your whole life purpose is focused on desires, you're manipulable. A desire has one of two outcomes. You either get it or you don't. But when you get it, it's boring. It's like, ah, okay, well, I've screwed a hundred women. Now what? Is it really that interesting? Does it really fulfill you? You know, now you've got a hundred women after you energetically, because at one level you've, you've raped them emotionally. Because they have their set of expectations, mainly around relationship and stuff like that. And you just use them for sexual conquest. You know, I'm, I'm simplifying. But passion has to arrive, arise, in my opinion, out of joy. And it's only in the childlike, not 
naive, but a pure childlike appreciation of life that passion can come up. And like a gardener creating a beautiful garden, that's what you can do inside your being. But my suggestion is the soil is your body. It's not a picture of your body. It's not a story about your body. It's actually the body. And we're so disconnected from our bodies in the West. I mean, you know, we won't even go all the way back to the origins with Descartes. I mean, or you certainly can if you want, but, you know, there's this severe disconnect between the mind and the body in the West. And I think unless unless you've gotten into some kind of practice like yoga, and it doesn't have to be yoga. I mean, I think maybe people maybe without could understand even if they don't necessarily understand all of this would perhaps relate to it if we're if we're put to them in other terms because you know some form of exercise or something else allows them to connect this way but i feel for so many people in the west actually including those people who i think may exercise a lot they just they're not aware of this unless you have some kind of practice like yoga, you know, because what are you doing when you exercise for most people? You know, you go into the gym, you put your headphones on, and then it's really just more mind wandering, right? It's disassociated from the body. So disassociation mentally is labeled as mental illness, schizophrenia and everything else. But it's so funny that disassociation from the body is seen as a great virtue. But it takes you into mental masturbation. You know, this masturbation ultimately is not very rewarding. It's self-defeating. So, you know, just let's put it in simple terms. How about you go for a walk on your own in nature? I mean, that for many people, that, that's achievable. There's a park or something like that. And it's great to know a lot of people do that. You can use anything like that, but I suggest anchor your practice in your body. Even if it's lying in bed five minutes, you don't need the disturbance, the noise. The noise is constant. And I mean noise from the point of mental noise, uh, listening to ads on TV, all the influences. But so many people are so dissociated in their bodies that silence feels threatening. Make friends with silence. I got rid of TV when I was in my early 20s. And every house I went into, you know, I'd disconnect the TV. And they would, at first house I bought in the States, this thing was, what kind of channel, what service do you want on your channels? I mean, it took him about 20 minutes because he couldn't comprehend the day I moved in that I didn't need, you know, 15 channels of crap. Oh, I believe that. <laughs> but, yeah, so, uh, but that's the level, that's the matrix. I mean, if you want to experience passion, you can never experience passion in simulation. And the matrix is a mental simulation of life. It appears safe because you think you can control it, but you're the slave to it because of this dualistic nature that reward-driven. You care about what your boss thinks, really? I never gave a shit, <laughs> to be honest. I did my thing. People would always say, do the right thing. He said, don't listen to what I say, do the right thing. And that was one of the things I really admired about him, that he did that, you know, he, and he achieved greatness through doing that. And he encouraged people, because he would tear people to pieces, you know, as part of his nature. He was just a freaking piranha. And if he wasn't getting what he wanted in that instant, he'd do it. But, you know, it's strange to me, but he never, ever once shouted at me. And that, that was only, I think, because I was doing, doing what to me was the right thing. I was going to my yoga class every week, and that was, I didn't mind what 
crisis was going on, which Chip had to go out, I'd say, look, now it's five o'clock Wednesday, I'm leaving. And if you make the things that are important to you non-negotiable, then you can gain passion. And it's not about actually hurting other people or not, you know, fighting. It's the opposite. It's actually looking inside yourself and establishing what's important and then constructing a life around it, not around answering emails, not around being on Facebook, not around being medicated. And your body will support you no matter where you are. Your body will support you. That's why you know people can change their diet and clean up at any stage and start to actually have some life come back. It's not easy because the further you go, the more detox you have. But you can do it if you point yourself in the right direction. And we're all different, you know, so I'm not telling you to do the same as me. Don't. Do your own thing. Play golf, whatever it is. There's a contemplative body-based practice, I think, that anyone can relate to. But seek that passion within you. So something you said made me want to ask a question, and it, it will also allow us to do a nice segue as well to talking about the technologies you've created for exploring consciousness, like the Ajna Light, because I definitely want to get there. So something you said a minute ago, you said something like, and correct me to be more precise, but you said something like, you'll never find passion living in a simulation. And so my questions are for you. People seem to be very excited about the advent of VR, virtual reality, as well as augmented reality. And, you know, a lot of that's around gaming. And for some people, it's clearly a form of escapism. Not that there's anything wrong with gaming or play. I mean, play is an important part of human learning as well. But people have also talked about these technologies in a way like they could really enhance human learning or even human interaction. And so I'm curious about your your thoughts on that. Do you see any sort of cause for optimism there or or is that sort of empty? I've been talking mainly, you know, advocating passion and the heart because those are human values. Now, to me, it's not that I dislike the intellect. You know, I'm very intellectual. I think a lot. Uh, you know, I analyze things. But I don't want that to be the whole of who I am. And for most people, it rapidly becomes that because it's a seductive environment. And the more engaging it becomes, the less room there is for imagination. You know, one of the biggest issues I think that people have is if they plug into simulations, is it going to really grow their imagination? If you read a book, you know, the old-fashioned way, to me anyway, I'm getting that book through my imagination. But if everything is provided and there's zero space for the imagination, then where does magic come in? If it's a game where it's like a violent game, you're just trying to kill as many uh, pixels as you can, what's that doing to your body? You know, it's feeding addiction. And maybe you could say, well, that addiction is better to be that you're killing pixels rather than killing people. But what does it do to your neocortex and your relationship between the reptilian brain and the limbic system and the neocortex? Our humanity is in the ability to take the 40 milliseconds it takes to go up into the neocortex and start moving beyond the five milliseconds of reptilian reaction. Well, entertainment, yeah, it's fine. But if that's the whole of your reality, I don't know. I guess The Matrix, the movie's about that. You know, that maybe there's something more. I don't believe in banning anything. You know, it's uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll. You know, people should be free to be themselves. I think when you criminalize things and ban them, you turn them into real shadows. So, you know, fine. It's something that's emanating, coming up. But I wonder, for the, most, for the majority of people, are they just going to be held in a trap? 
in that kind of VR. On the other hand, if you wish to explore, say, inside a protein molecule or something like that, and the visualization of it shows you the intricacies of how it's formed together in a way we couldn't see otherwise, I think that's really powerful. So are you in the driving seat or are you being driven? Are you being manipulated through emotions like killing because you're, you know, your your trauma is being triggered. You know, do you just want adrenaline the whole time? Personally, I prefer oxytocin, you know, touch, and I prefer serotonin, joy. You know, those they're inhibitors of the brain to get you into a balanced state. They're, they're yin, whereas adrenaline and dopamine are, are yang. There's a balance. So you asked me actually earlier about becoming a monk. I mean, that was pretty crazy that I. That happened to me, but it's purely because the abbot of the Wat I went to with Dr. Rampa, who who helps me here in my healing center here in Thailand. She's uh, it was the day we finished building the healing center. The next day I went. It was my birthday. It was what's called Songkran, which is a tiny year. And Lung Po Suchin, the abbot there, he's today's your now's your time to become a monk. He saw that I've been a monk in lots of past lives. Like what? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. I, you know, I'm a yogi. I hadn't cut my hair for, for 16 years. You know, I'm doing my practice. I don't want to go begging. You know, I don't believe in the religion. And he said, well, you were a monk in a lot of past lives. I can see it very clearly. And now's your time. He said, you can leave. But if you do, the last two people who left when I told them that this was their time were in serious car accidents. He said, it's up to you. Oh, shit. So I realized it was, I could have just refused it or I could have gone with it. And so I went with it, and he let me do my practice. So I could have rejected it, but, but what I did was I decided to continue with it, but it meant I couldn't eat, for example, because I do Ramadan every day. You know, I eat once, one vegan meal after six, and the monks eat in the morning. So I, you know, I had to deal with all of that kind of stuff. But anyway, it gave me a chance to be disconnected with the world. My head was shaved, and okay, well, that... That gave me an opportunity to see what it was like doing something very different to what I'd been doing. And it was important and valuable. And I've taken a lot of those lessons into, you know, continued with them. So I still shave my head every day. How did that experience shape you permanently other than your hairstyle? It reinforced to me the importance of the practice because I literally had nothing else. They wouldn't let me out of the grounds of the what because I was doing stuff that monks aren't meant to do. Um, it gave me, you know, getting up at four in the morning, going to the the book, the chapel and chanting. It really gave me a mirror of having to do stuff that I didn't want to do. So that was good. You know, it's like a, an ego thing. Well, you know, I have my practice. Now I can't, now I have to fit in with this other thing. And it was very inconvenient. It was just one of those things. It's like going to prison. I mean, literally, I wrote... There's a PDF on my website, laniyoga.com, about it called Escape from the Pious Prison. I really felt like I was in prison. <laughs> and it was very important for me because it was like a, an equivalent of how I was when I was in the corporate prison. But instead of it being lubricated by money, it was lubricated by, I've got time to do my practice and be on my own. And I literally, I wouldn't see anyone. You know, I, I had my coconut milk that I drank after six. <laughs> Eventually, after the, the abbot, Suchin, he kept on saying to me, well, look, you're eating once a day, we eat once a day, just change your time. I said, no, I made a vow to myself 
that I'm doing Ramadan. Ramadan is the ancient yogic practice of eating after six. It's symbolic. You know, it's meaningful. If I just take a vow and then I break it, what does that mean? You know, it's, a vow has meaning to myself. I vowed never to drink alcohol again when I was 21. It's my own vow. It's not somebody else's. I vowed to become vegetarian when I did that at 24, to be a vegan at 30. And you know, now I'm raw vegan. And, you know, it's like, these are things I do for myself. Not, I don't seek other people's approval for it. But when you make a vow, what happens is you create self-love and meaning in self-discipline. Other people loving you doesn't mean anything. That can easily turn into an egotistical thing. But your own vows to yourself are very, very important. So that's what, anyway, being a monk did. It, it, it gave me a new viewpoint of what else can I integrate. And I think it, it broke some of my ideas. Like, oh, this is what I'm meant to do in my life, and this is how the, the monk thing works and stuff. So anyway, you know, to come back to what I'm doing now, I built this healing center. And again, it was not what I planned to do, but I'd sold my house in California, and I was told I had seven years of inner work, you know, inner awareness. And right near the end of that, this light and sound device costing $30,000 called the Lucia light came here because a friend of a friend of a friend was interested. And it was a hypnagogic experience. It's like... Wow, this is cool. But when they finally, after two, two days of dragging the price out of them, it's like, uh, no, I'm not going to pay $30,000 for this thing. But they went off to Dow Gardens here in Chiang Mai. And so uh, they were meant to be back in an hour or two, but I knew Mantak Chia would get all his people on it and everything. So he did. But I was gardening. And I literally was given a download of what to do, which LEDs to use, a Wi-Fi hotspot, a web app to have uh, this peer-to-peer ambassador way of bringing it out into the world. I couldn't see the box and I did zero research. I'd never made a board myself because I was a chip designer, but I did everything in three months because after the startup world, I realized the most destructive thing you can have in any startup is meetings. And so I really don't like meetings. So I just did it all on my own. And there was something important about that. First of all, I hadn't done any technology for maybe about 11 years at that point. I'd retired completely in 2002. And so I just wasn't doing technology. I did a little bit of consulting, legal consulting, but nothing much. So I had to learn all this stuff, but but it, it really, it came with passion. And so I knew it was meant to be happening. And so I was working till three in the morning and then debugging. In the past, I debugged mentally, analyzing it, thinking it through. But I was debugging in my Qigong practice. I'd go to bed at three in the morning, couldn't fix something. I'd be doing my tantra work, you know, moving energy. And suddenly I'd say, oh, that's the answer. So I actually integrated my way of practice with my technology. And then when I leaned, I remember leaning over the first prototype and closing my eyes, turning it on. It's like, wow, something's going on. So then I productized it for six months. That was first half of 2014. And I sold my first one in August of 2014. And then I went out into Hong Kong, Singapore, and Australia. In Australia, I did a lot of the, uh, the, the expos, like Mind, Body, Spirit, and Conscious Living. And that's how I got it out then. And this is the Ajna Light specifically yeah. guy? Like, yeah. And so I knew something interesting was going on because it wasn't a hypnagogic thing. People were going, having near-death experiences, going through a tunnel of light. They were seeing their relatives, all sorts of unusual stuff was going on. And I didn't know anything about DMT 
you know, I'd done an acid trip when I was in medical school, but that was about it. And then I, you know, ended up being hooked up with Dennis McKenna and I heard about this. Somebody told me to look up melanopsin and I realized that there was a, because of the design choices I made, which is the exact opposite of what the research said, which I hadn't even read. I was actually triggering this melanopsin process and that was triggering a DMT effect. And DMT is what we experience uh, in our dreams. It's the mechanism that allows us to have visual dreams and to have meaning in our dreams. And it's there in mass when we're born, when, when we come through. You know, it's a big thing for our consciousness to leave the mother's womb. And then again, when we die, because it's a big thing for our consciousness to leave the physical body. So people having amazing experiences, and, and I sold a lot of them, about 600 now. Uh, many two therapists I did Hundred of the first version made some improvements. Hundred of the second version, and then I got the visual of oh, it's meant to be this pyramid. It's the capstone of the pyramid. It's gold. It's got Tesla plates in it. And then the third version is really unhappy with. But through that, there was the Neuralite, which was a friend of mine. He was a big researcher. He still is. I mean, he used to do strobe lights and LSD back in the seventies. But he also brought. Russian technology. To clarify, was this as in he was the chemist who made LSD or he was taking LSD while he made strobe lights? He, he, he had a light, a strobe light, and he was doing all this crazy stuff. Okay. He wasn't a chemist. He was a bioresonance and he brought Skainer. So he was working with the 49ers and other football teams. And he was in Santa Monica. He had a school there of myofascial uh, restructuring and he designed the protocol for the first day spa in California which is Burke Williams. Anyway it's a whole long thing but he was very up on all the, the programming you know all the research in neuroplasticity and stuff like that and so he designed some protocols some sessions a hundred of them that we implemented on the astronaut and that was the Neuralite but as a result of that I became interested in magnetics and I bought EMF map that cost $5,000 called the Omnium from Switzerland and another one from Hungary. And so, oh, you know, maybe he was saying, well, this would be good to integrate pulsed infrared with the Neuralite to upregulate the mitochondria. So this was all in late 2015. We got the whole thing literally in two months, including the connectome sessions, which are amazing. The connectome is uh, Laplace transforms of the fMRIs of what the brain is doing. The brain has a symphony of frequencies when it's in action. It's only very recently that this has been observed. It's not just, oh, alpha is 10 hertz, end of story. Different parts of the brain are signaling simultaneously at different frequencies. 10 hertz has to be the, happens to be the main dominant one, but these fMRIs with Laplace transforms, so you could see the colors of the different parts of the brain interacting. So we, that was the last thing I put on the, neuro, uh, on the Neuralite. I, I just did a talk in, in the Philippines, in Manila, for anti-aging conference there. I came back, put it together, and neuroplasticity is the number one research focus of the National Institutes of Health for the last few years because of dementia being such a big problem. So out of it, you know, this is all John Hopkins, MIT, everywhere like Harvard, all the top schools doing it. So MIT have a spinner, which is doing a light with one frequency, 40 hertz, 
and 40 hertz is shown to reduce amyloid plaque in mice. So because this is spin out and because it's lots of money, you know, $30 million, it's going to take them years and years, like three years to get a product out and blah, blah, blah. So we had that, you know, years ago. It's part of what the action light could do. And the action light, because of its stochastics, is very powerful for neuroplasticity, really powerful. We've seen a lot of that. But out of all of that, I was just playing around with pulsing infrared lights, but I had this Chinese thing, which is an intranasal unit, which is totally great. It's worked really well, and we sell it as, you know, to go with the Isolite and Neurolite on the website. So, if anyone's interested, the, the websites are ashnalight, A-J-N-A-L-I-G-H-D.com, and the Neurolite, T-H-E-N-E-U-R-O-L-I-G-H-D.com. Now, Again, I was, you know, I was just doing my, my Qigong practice and I suddenly saw what I was meant to do, which was to take a coil of wire that was on my lab bench and connect it up to these pulsing infrared LEDs. Well, nobody does that. They're two different worlds. It's the problem with research. Everyone doing research is in their own little narrow speciality. They don't talk to people outside the box. At the most, people who understand what they're doing do meta researchers. But psychedelics, you know, mushrooms and everything else, LSD, they're about connecting different parts of the brain together. You think outside the box. So I did it. You know, I don't question what I'm told intuitively. You know, if my enteric brain is telling me to do something, however you want to look at it, I go and do it. And this thing was amazing. So that turned into the pyrolite, which is the pyramid light, pulsed infrared and magnetic, magnetic induction device, pulsed infrared and magnetic induction device. And that was uh, about a year ago, December 2016. So this thing was like, wow, something is happening here. So I started experimenting with it, finding out that I was sleeping much better. I didn't get up, you know, wake five, six times a night, which I had been for years. And people were experiencing really quite remarkable improvements in their health. So that's all on pyrolight.com, P-Y-R-A-L-I-G-H-T.com. And you experienced it uh, last time you were here, so maybe you'd like to tell us a bit about it. Yeah, that was, well, I used both of them. The, the really profound experience, it was the Ajna light, right, in terms of the, the consciousness exploration that I used. It was incredibly profound. I'd, I'd, it was my second time using it. And the first time I was definitely, you know, very impressed. I mean, I'd spoken to Dennis McKenna about it, who had great things to say. So that was a big endorsement. And I was definitely impressed the first time I worked with it. But the second time was really an experience of another order of magnitude. I mean, of course, it's not going to be the same as taking a psychedelic in, in certain respects. And there's the good and the bad of that. I mean, of course, you're not going to have something that totally shatters your ego, which means have this full on dissolve. Well, you could have a dissolving of sense of self. It's not like you couldn't have that, but you might not have that depth of an experience. But on the other hand, of course, things aren't going out of control. Right. And so that's what makes it a very, these technologies a very safe way to explore one's consciousness. I think that's an important aspect to kind of highlight here. It's, you know, psychedelics are definitely more of an unknown, a wild card. And with the technology you created, you don't have that kind of risk factor. And yet at the same time, it was incredibly profound. I mean, the experience was truly 
It was more powerful in terms of the visuals I had and actually the way that brought me into an experience of consciousness exploration. It was more powerful than many experiences I've had on psychedelics. I mean, it really was specifically like a DMT experience. I mean, there was this, you know, and words can never do it justice, but it was it was actually language I've heard other people use to describe a DMT experience. I've done DMT before, but hadn't had this particular experience where they talk about you get this tunnel of light and it draws you deep into the tunnel. And that's exactly what happened to me. And it happened to me to the point where I started to have an out-of-body experience. And it was just for a little bit until I came back in my body because I kind of had the thought, you know, ground yourself. But it was incredibly intense and powerful. And I was very impressed by it. I would strongly recommend for people to give it a shot. And I want to say on that note, I'm glad you shared the website. Feel free to share them again. And what I'm wondering is for people who would like to experiment with this technology, do you have any advice in terms of, you know, where the type of centers that have this, where they could go try it out and kind of have a test run? Well, thank you for, uh, for talking about your experience. What you're describing, I've seen a lot. You can imagine I've probably had maybe some of it, it's hard to, to estimate exactly, but I would say between five to 10,000 hours people sessions, because I've done it in group settings as well, like at Boston Pyramid. I've been all over the world with it. The real work is our inner work and the tools I view like say a walking stick. So I would say psychedelics are in the same category. The psychedelics are tools that you can use. Now they may drop you into a ravine as you walk up the mountain. <laughs> but they may show you a different path to go on or something like that. The thing with the action light that, that is unique is this fact that it's the experience. So Dennis McKenna, second time he was on it, we were at Tiringham Hall, uh, July 2015, and he said, just on a peyote ceremony, he said he thought this was the most important advancement in neurology in the last 100 years. If we can have authentic and deep experiences, that are comfortable. In other words, they don't have the option of, you know, psychosis on one end or transcendence at the other end, and you don't know which one you're going to come out in. You can use it to grow, to really grow, and you can change the intensity, change the length of time you're doing it, and all those things, and cycle in and out with it whenever you want. Then I think there's a good possibility that people can sh transform their consciousness. And clearly, how do you like to describe it? You know, the end times, the uh, falling apart of Western society, economically, uh, morally, whatever you want to say about it. If we don't shift inside ourselves, all that's going on in the outside world, you know, the matrix, the, the jobs, the indebtedness, all the rest of it is a reflection of our reptilian nature, you know, our grasping nature, our fear-based reaction to life, that we want to control it. That's the yang consciousness, that's the intellect. The body in the yin consciousness is willing to surrender, like a woman surrendering to sex. Now, we don't give up our power when we surrender in that way, in that very yin way. We open up what's most vulnerable inside us, if you like, in our, our uterus, uh, where we can give birth to our new selves. 
So these tools, you know, they can help greatly, but they don't do the work for you. Now, there's a hybrid which I've been doing, and it's through Dennis, you know, thanks to him. He talked to Steve Barker because Dennis is a hardcore scientist. You know, he likes to cut things up and measure things. But with DMT, you're talking about parts per billion, and it's pretty inconvenient to have your head cut open and measure what's going on in your pineal gland just after you've been on the astrolite. So I want to be sure to provide all that information in the show links in terms of where people can explore more about it. But but if you could just sort of just sort of leave that there's a hybrid way, which is microdosing with the astrolite and particularly the pyrolite. So pyrolite is a DMT experience through magnetics. And I think people will really enjoy that. Anyway, that's what I want to say. Thanks for talking to me today. I love that idea, actually. That's really intriguing. And I had wondered the same thing myself. And so I'm glad you suggested that. Would love to try that sometime for sure. Well, Guy, I want to thank you so much and emphasize that we'll be including links in the show notes to all these technologies you've developed. And they really are wonderful and incredibly powerful tools for exploring consciousness in a more safe alternative, as you noted. So I want to thank you for the work that you're doing and thank you for your time. And I really hope that you'll come on the show again, because I feel that you are full of so much knowledge and wisdom that we could talk for several episodes easily. Well, thank you, Adrian. It was a pleasure to meet you the other day in person. And I'm glad you're living here in Chiang Mai. And uh, thank you for all the work you're doing in sharing this information. Bye-bye now. Well, thank you, Guy. We'll talk again soon for sure. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you really enjoyed that conversation with Guy, as well as hearing his personal story, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. I want to leave you with some of the links for where you can follow up and learn more about the technologies in case you're interested in doing so. You can learn more about the Ajna Light at ajnalight.com. That's A-J-N-A light.com. The Pyrolite at pyrolite.com. That's P-Y-R-A light.com. You also can participate in conversations around these technologies in case you know you want to learn more before you try them out or in case you want to share your experiences and reflect on it and ask questions with other people who have used them at the Ajna Light Community Facebook group. And finally, you can look at Guy's website, which is Lana Yoga dot com l-a-n-n-a yoga dot com in order to find more information out about guy and some of the other services he offers so really hope that you enjoyed that conversation and i will talk to you again next week this episode has ended but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hacking the self. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.